I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we are continuing our coverage of Israel-Palestine, the bombing of Gaza by Israel in retaliation for the October 7th Hamas attack and related issues. This time we have on investigative journalist and attorney Charlotte Dennett, who is the daughter of American master spy Daniel Dennett. And no, it's not the Daniel Dennett uh, that you may be thinking of, uh, the famous philosopher and new atheist figure, but another Daniel Dennett. In any case, Charlotte has written a book entitled Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the deadly politics of the great game for oil. Before that, she co-wrote the classic with Gerard Colby entitled Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller, and Evangelism in the Age of Oil. As you can surmise from the titles of those two books, Charlotte is something of an expert in what's been called resource-based politics. And she has a very interesting perspective on current events in the Middle East, specifically Israel and Gaza. We'll get into that in the conversation. Here it is, without any further ado, Charlotte Dennett, author of Follow the Pipelines.
Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really, really excited to be speaking with. A publicist contacted me a few days ago and said, hey, I want to get this guest on for you. And then when I heard the name, I was like, oh, my God, I, I read their books when I was a teenager. Uh, but I'm talking about Charlotte Dennett, who is the author of a number of books. Uh, but the one that we're going to be focusing on Today is Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. And this book is particularly relevant in light of what is happening in Gaza. How are you doing, Charlotte Dennett? How am I doing? I'm 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 dismayed. That's how I'm doing. Oh my God. <laughs> watching these images on TV, it's like, hey, we're watching genocide in progress. Really cool. It's just unbelievable. No, I, I totally agree. I feel I feel so strange when I ask people now, oh, how are you doing? Especially when we're talking about these topics. It's, it's dark stuff. But uh, yeah, maybe dark. for my listeners, uh, could you give a little bit of your background and uh, some of your uh, previous investigative work? Uh, and then we can get deeper into what's happening in Gaza right now. Background. Hmm. Well, um my two previous books, one of them was called, oh, damn, sorry. Can't turn that guy off. Just a second. It happens. Uh, the pre I turned off my cell phone. Anyway, yeah. Um, oh, how far back do I go? I was a journalist in Beirut during the uh, early to mid-70s. And the reason I was in Beirut, I was born in Beirut. We can go all the way back then. Born in Beirut, daughter of America's first master spy in the Middle East who was sta stationed there. Uh, and then who died mysteriously in a plane crash after a top secret mission to Saudi Arabia. Uh, I only investigated that later after I myself became a journalist in Lebanon, began wondering if I was following his footsteps. Um, and so we can get into that. I started to investigate his death. Uh, and then I had to take literally time off um, when I uh, I was a journalist for the Beirut Daily Star and another magazine called Middle East Sketch in the, in the early 70s. And then left because of the Lebanese Civil War. I'd been shot at and decided that I really didn't want to die in something that was not clear what I would be dying for. But anyway, I went back to the, uh, New York and um, learned that it was it was just about impossible uh, to write, especially about Palestinian issues. I mean, the, the Western media just would not have it. So I ended up meeting my husband at the U.N. and we went on a long uh, investigation into genocide of indigenous peoples in the Amazon. And that took up 18 years of my life. And the result of it is a book entitled, it's a long one, Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller and Evangelism in the Age of Oil. So having uh, sort of investigated how uh, the Rockefellers had, especially Nelson, had developed a a private whole empire in Latin America, which most people don't know about. I learned a lot about how oil factors into um, geopolitical realities. And that helped me when I returned, so to speak, to analyzing the Middle East. And uh, I, as I say, I do it from a geopolitical perspective, which the media has still, in my humble opinion, 
not caught up with or is told not to get caught up, caught up, caught up with it because that's how rulers look at the world. Rulers, oil companies, influential people, you know, where is such and such a property? What can we extract from it? How much money can we make from it? And when it comes to the Middle East, it's almost entirely about oil. You just, you can't talk about the Middle East without talking about oil. And yet they do, like the current crisis right now. You never hear oil mentioned, which we could get into in this interview. But anyway, and then I, uh, so I spent 18 years working on that book. It was published by HarperCollins in uh to let's see 1994 uh yeah 94 90 that will be done okay yeah 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 will be done yeah and uh so you were young in those days uh and and that book got suppressed by the way but it's been rescued yeah you can see it's open road media so you can get it online um then and and gerard's other book i think got released by them too the dupont dynasty one yeah jerry yeah, Jerry alone wrote uh, DuPont Dynasty behind the nylon curtain. So he's an expert in looking at the boys on top. And I learned from him. Uh, he was the primary author in Thy Will Be Done. But I, I learned a great deal both from him and from that experience. Then uh, right after the war in, in Iraq, I was so appalled at that illegal war and and i vowed as an attorney to run for attorney general in vermont and if successful i would prosecute bush for sending our troops off to war in a lie i had vincent bugliosi uh, help me out in that campaign and i wrote a book about it called people versus bush uh and it's all about the campaign and what i learned from that then finally i got on to investigating my in full throttle in, in investigating my father's death in, uh, after his mission to Saudi Arabia. And um, <clears throat> that led me to writing uh, the book that you're now going to talk about, Follow the Pipelines. It had been originally titled in the hardcover, The Crash of Flight 3804. Uh, and and then COVID hit. And the, and the book, like, it never took off because of COVID. Everything, all my... Appearances were canceled and so on. So, uh, and then we got to thinking, well, maybe we should retitle it. Well, people couldn't remember the name of the fl- of of the crashed airplane. And anyway, so we decided to call it "Follow the Pipeline." So that's that's the book that's available right now. So and what I want to discuss. Yeah, I, I do want to get here. more into that. But for listeners that are unfamiliar with the book that will be done. Maybe you could just give an overview of your findings in that with uh, Gerard. Yeah. Uh, in that book, uh, it started by um, Jerry uh, at the UN running into a couple of journalists, uh, Spanish uh, journalists uh, who had just come back from a, va- a vacation in the Amazon. And they were telling him about this missionary group that, you know, they would be along a riverbank and suddenly this airplane drops in on the riverbank, it's short takeoff and landing uh, type airplane used in Vietnam, by the way. And uh, out comes this guy dressed in Western attire, and they're both equally shocked to see each other on the banks of the Amazon. And they ask him what he's doing, and he says, I'm with the Summer Institute of Linguistics, which is a very sophisticated uh, secular name for an evangelical missionary organization known in the the States as the Wycliffe Bible Translators. 
And um, <clears throat> what these journalists told us is, is that he actually took them around to some of the missionary bases and they learned that they had very advanced radio communications. They had a fleet of airplanes. And so they were traveling in the Amazon where most people never went to, which was very upsetting to, for instance, anthropologists uh, of their respective countries. Uh, you know, they wanted to know how, what's this super sophisticated operation doing in our country? And, and uh, p- particularly because uh, these journalists told Jerry that um, uh, Indian villages were, were being wiped out and they, the, the missionaries were in control of that, these, these villages and seemed to be turning a blind eye. So when we decided to go in and join with these journalists, Jerry got a um, book contract to do it. And uh, when we decided to join them, the whole idea was to verify um, why the missionaries turned a blind eye and whether or not the CIA was involved because, the, because of the uh, very fancy radio equipment and, and the airplanes and so on. So we... We ended up going down there. Let's see, when was that? That was in 1976. And um, we soon found out that our, our colleagues uh, got spooked. They, they reported themselves to the U.S. Embassy, which was a big mistake. We went there as, as tourists, and, um, and we had a couple of uh, uh, journalistic sponsors. Um, and... So they left and we continued on and we visited, what, eight countries, many of them bordering the Amazon. We did our investigation. It took us 18 years. That's the bottom line to, to fully understand what was going on. And we realized that we had to find out who was financially benefiting from having missionaries down there. And so we were able to finally track it to um, Adolf Burley, who was um very close to Nelson Rockefeller, and his papers had been declassified at the uh, Roosevelt Archives Library. Once we got into his papers, we found out that Nelson Rockefeller had developed this whole, um, really, empire in Latin America, and it began in World War II. And uh, much of it was about oil, obviously. He's a Rockefeller. But he was looking to expand uh, agribusiness and farming and so on in the Amazon. And uh, so whereas the missionaries would say that they were funded by their local churches, that wasn't totally true. Because what we finally learned in following the money is that it was big corporate money that was – looking into making profits in the Amazon. And, and so our story relays what we learned. And people call it an anatomy of conquest, which I think is a great title, because once we learned how it worked in the Amazon, we were able to apply it to, to different parts of the world. And, and the, you know, the way it is, is that often, uh, if you're looking at a given territory, you, you need to scout it out first. And you can use spies to do it. Uh, you can use anthropologists to do it, uh, witting or unwitting. And you can use missionaries to do it. They are the, the like the scouts that go out there and tell whether there are hostiles. Are there hostiles? Are they going to shoot us when we start coming in with our bulldozers? And we learned that 
the missionaries played a role of pacifying the, the indigenous people, uh, get them to support the Americans coming in and and um, being becoming uh, financially dependent on U.S. Uh, charity and U.S. aid and so on and developing little sort of pro-capital communities in the in Latin America and which set off divide and rule because some some of the Indians got wealthy and others didn't. But anyway, that was the mechanism that was used uh, primarily for conquest. So that's sort of a thumbnail sketch of uh, I will be done, which I would say is still valuable to learn how the highest levels of power work. And uh, there's a lot going on in Latin America right now, but of course there's a lot going on in uh, in the Middle East as well. So That's actually a really good segue. So you have a map, uh, oil and gas fields in the Eastern Mediterranean with a warning right. uh, that comes with that map that says a tinderbox is ready to explode. Uh, could you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, when, when I was putting these maps together, um, mind you, that was a couple of years ago. So I knew it would happen. It had to happen. When these discoveries of oil and natural gas happened uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, um, this was a very big deal. Uh, and the first ones were discovered in 2000. And uh, Yasser Arafat was still around in those days. And he thought, wow, th some of these are right off the right off the coast of Gaza. So this is like mana from heaven. He didn't use those words, but it was like, oh, my God, the Palestinians are finally going to be able to be financially uh, independent and can have their own state. And this is just great. Well, it was not considered great by the Israelis, particularly the hardliners. And so uh, in, in 2007, I have, have this great quote from a, a military hardliner who later became defense uh, minister under Israel. And he this said- This is uh, uh, Moshe Dialon? Yes, that's who it is, exactly. Uh, and, and what he said is that, I could quote from it if I find it right here. He said that the proceeds of the gas deal could amount to a billion dollars but that it would most likely not trickle down to impoverished uh, Palestinian people. Uh, it would likely serve to fund terror attacks against Israel. So the source on that is a Jerusalem issue briefs, okay? So he said that in 2007, and within a year, the first major uh, Israeli campaign against Gaza called Operation uh, Cast Lead was launched. And uh, the whole idea was to send the people of Gaza into decades in the past. Um, and, and of course, to go after Hamas, which just around this time had, had taken over control of Gaza. And people wonder why that separation, you know, Hamas and Gaza and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. And the reason is the uh, when British gas came in in 2000 to explore for the Palestinians, what is now called the Gaza Marine, uh, it was going to be under the aegis of the, of, of the uh, Palestine Authority, who um, Israel did not want it going to the Palestine Authority. So what they did is they ended up supporting Hamas as being in charge of the Gaza Strip. 
And I think the idea was, you know, shifting it over to Gaza. They're never going to uh, allow them to have control over these natural gas resources because they were the more radical group than the Palestine Authority. What happened in 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 uh, Gaza at this time, though, there were elections, and the Palestinians actually voted in favor of Hamas being their government because they felt that the Palestinian Authority had become corrupted and uh, was too close to the Israelis. That's how they felt it, and they felt that Hamas would uh, protect them, fight back when necessary. So that's what happened. Then when you come around to 2014, there is a more concerted effort uh, to um, invade Gaza and get rid of Hamas. And and again, it really it didn't succeed uh, to, to completely wipe them out. But uh, that was another um, example of going in to uproot Hamas and get an Israeli monopoly over the gas fields. And uh, that one killed 2,100 Palestinians, three quarters of them civilians. And it was written up as a guardian as uh, that resource competition increasingly is in the heart of the conflict, uh, motivated largely by Israel's increasing domestic energy woes at an age of expensive energy competition. Oh, the whole idea was, though, that, that they felt that that was the underlying motive to invade. And um, I, I, I give credence to that because in my book, Follow the Pipelines, what I've done is just learned that all the major, for instance, all the major 9-11 wars that happened, Afghanistan, um, Iraq, obviously, then we go into Yemen, and there was the civil war in Syria. They're all about oil and pipelines. And I documented in my book. And, and the reason why pipelines are part of the story is, you know, once you gain control over the resources, you got to distribute it. How are you going to do it? You can do it by by tankers, but but by far the cheapest way to do it uh, is by pipelines. And if you're going to run the oil by pipelines, you got to make sure they're protected, right? So that's when the military comes in. And they have to be protected because you will not, you will not get any financing for these major infrastructure projects. Unless there's unless there is peace in the region, so if if there's no peace, no pipelines, um, and that has relevance today as well. I believe you know people may ask why is the Biden administration going in so wholeheartedly into this massive uh, get rid of Hamas operation, and and I mean. For seven decades, the U.S. has been Israel's firmest ally and supporter. I see you're ready to ask me a question, so go for it. Well, I was going to ask you, one of the things I always hear when we talk about Iraq and whether it was a war for oil, I'll see people push back and say, well, we didn't take the oil. And only 6% of the oil uh, the U.S. imports is from Iraq. Um, was it about – I think people, though, don't realize – uh, I think a lot of it is about protecting those oil reserves and those pipelines, not necessarily taking it all out immediately. Well, yeah, not immediately. I mean, first of all, there was just the pro the problem of, uh, you know, returning stability to Iraq before you were going to do some major oil projects. And their stability has still not happened. 
Um, but um, th there's another angle here that probably most people are not aware of, and that is that uh, Bibi Netanyahu, <laughs> can't even spell Net it. Netanyahu, yeah. Netanyahu, um, he was finance minister at the time where preparations were made uh, to invade Iraq. And uh, he was fully for, for it and encouraged George W. Bush to go ahead with it. Why? Uh, because if you, um, again, if you look at the map, the, the most important map for our discussion today is the one that's on the cover of the book, because what it shows is three different pipelines terminating in the, uh, on the coast of the Eastern Mediterranean. And uh, the lower one, which is the one that's here, uh, terminated Haifa. Okay, Haifa, Palestine. It was built in the 30s after World War One. I. I can go into that, but at any rate, it was closed in 1948 because the Iraqis did not want uh, Iraqi oil going to um, Palestine, soon to become Israel. They were very nationalistic at the time, and they opposed it. Uh, so it was closed in 48. Uh, Netanyahu wanted to revive the pipeline, and right after the invasion. Uh, he boasted that soon oil will be Iraqi oil will be flowing to Haifa. Uh, and he said it's not a pipe dream, but in fact, it was a pipe dream. And it still is a pipe dream. Uh, it still hasn't been reopened, but the dream is there. And the uh, yeah. OK, so so that was a big motivation, uh, certainly for Israel uh, and um and, and it would have assisted uh, Israel in, in developing its own economy, uh, et cetera. And so that hasn't happened, but they may still want that. And they're even trying now to revive the Trans-Arabian pipeline, which is what my father worked on. He wanted to determine the route of that pipeline, which would have been either to end in Haifa or in Lebanon. Um, and it, it did eventually go through and it terminated in Lebanon, but um, its primary protector um, was Israel. I mean, it, 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 Israel's just like, you know, a couple hundred miles away from where that terminal is in Lebanon. And so um, that was another uh, aspect to the, uh, the well, now is an as aspect now because under the Abraham Accords, uh, there's talk about reviving that pipeline that was closed during the Lebanese Civil War. You see, so so all this stuff that's going on behind the scene never gets out, or hardly ever gets out to the American people. You got to just keep digging. You can Google it, and you will find the connections. It takes a bit of work because you can't rely on the mainstream media to uh, report on it. Was there anything else you were going to say before I, I interrupted with that question about Iraq? I think you were speaking a little bit about the relationship between the Biden administration and, and Israel. Was there anything you had to add to that? Well, this is just conjecture at this point. It's simply I, I do know that uh, Israel's dream under Netanyahu certainly is to become an energy corridor along the whole eastern Mediterranean coast. You know, you know, that's the way they're going to get their natural gas up to Europe. And because of Ukraine, as you know, 
because of the sabotage of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, um, the Europeans are, were not getting this new injection of natural gas and oil that they had anticipated. They were already 40% dependent on uh, the Russians to get the gas to Ukraine. But, but then with the war breaking out, they're desperately searching for other, other suppliers. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if they were saying, okay, Israel, now's your chance to really develop this dream that you had of running an oil corridor uh, of pipelines up the Eastern Mediterranean. And if you look, um, if you get Gaza, if you get Hamas out of the way, then uh, these radicals, these terrorists, then maybe some financing will come along. And um, there was even a, I just read that in June, uh, Netanyahu had actually agreed to maybe uh, developing the Gaza fields, but not under Hamas, under the Palestinian Authority. And I was looking at that and I was saying, well, what are the chances of that are that going to happen? Because he didn't, Netanyahu didn't want it to be with the Palestinian Authority. And all I can surmise is that, look, you can deal with uh, Abbas. He's a moderate. Uh, you can deal with him. And, and let's go forward on this plan. Uh, I don't know if it's going to come across now, though, because so much, so much damage and destruction has done to Gaza and it's inflamed the whole, obviously, the whole Arab and Islamic world and, and the, the corrupt rulers over them, backed often by the U.S., um, they're under pressure from the street. So it's, I think this dream of um, turning it into an energy corridor is going to take some time to take place. But, you know, I was looking, it always helps to look at maps. If you want to clear the cobways, look at the maps. And... Um, so Gaza is now being totally destroyed. Well, Lebanon is totally flattened. Um, its economy was in a free fall when the uh, explosion of the, of the Beirut Harbor happened. And that made it even more desperate. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, hmm, I wonder when the time is going to come where the Lebanese are going to be tantalized to join into some kind of an oil and natural gas deal to recover. And um, so that has happened now. They've demarcated off uh, the, the Lebanon's uh, coastal area uh, that would give it access to the oil and gas. But it did so in a very weakened position. Um, but maybe that will be achieved. And then there's, when you go up the coastline, first there's Lebanon, and then there's Syria, and Syria's in bad shape, very bad shape. The civil war was uh, started with legitimate complaints against Assad, but uh, eventually it became a proxy war. And uh, the U.S. and Israel brought in all their proxies, and uh, the Russians uh, brought in theirs. You know, and, and that's what's happened in Syria. So, but the, because of the Russian assistance, um, Assad was able to, to stay in power, even though he has allowed American troops to be protecting on Syria's uh, eastern region, which has most of its oil and natural gas. There are encampments of, of uh, 
Americans there, ostensibly there to fight ISIS terrorists, and that's why the Syrians allowed it. But as you can see, it's all everything is interconnected here, and it and it and it's because of the oil and, and the natural gas. It's the great game. It is the great game, which is the the uh, subtitle of my book: Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy. That was my father, and the deadly politics of the great game for oil. And it's a sad reality because just while, you know, governments are trying to move away from their dependence on fossil fuels, um, it's still happening. The great game is still going on. How old is the great game? Oh, well, the great game, uh, it it started under the British um, in in the 19th century. uh, And... um, the British uh, were were actually vying with the Russians for um, control, actually of oil very early on, um, or trade routes, trade routes. Um, but for the purposes of my book, um, I trace it back to uh, World War One, actually, because the British. The, here's the key to why you don't hear about the oil connection. You don't hear about it because it's the fuel of the military. Okay? That makes it a national security issue. And uh, But if you dig, you find out. Britain in, let's say, 19, around, no, I'm sorry, 20, oh, I'm, I'm going crazy. 1911, sorry, I'm getting my centuries mixed up here. No problem. Uh, Winston Churchill had a he was first Lord of the Admiralty. It meant that he controlled the Navy, which was uh, a large consumer of coal. But by then, oil had been discovered, and they realized it was cheaper and more efficient. So if Britain's Navy was going to win on the high seas, it had to convert its, its uh, Navy to oil. But it didn't have any. It had tons of coal. It didn't have oil. So Winston Churchill ruefully remarked that Britain would have to fight on a sea of troubles in order to get oil. And its, it's um, first-class war aim, quote-unquote, was to seize the oil of Iraq. And they're already gotten hold of the oil of Iran. They wanted to get the oil of Iraq. And they succeeded. They succeeded. That's that's where the whole Lawrence of Arabia and all that story about uh, the Arabs cooperating with the British to get rid of the Turks that controlled the whole Middle East uh, and during World War One, And then afterwards, that whole region was divvied up primarily between the French and the British. And that's when um, more, more uh, competition over... Uh, how you were going to ship the oil. And the idea was, eventually it was turned out that the, uh, the French-controlled contro- region of the Middle East, uh, which they established under a French mandate after World War I, that pipeline was going to go through Lebanon. And then the, the British were going to control a lower route that had a pipeline terminating in Haifa. And so there were agreements, you know, how they were breaking up the the region. And on the history book, it's called the San Remo Agreement. But what they took out was 
his original name, the San Remo Agreement for Oil. So you go way back then, and you find out that that's what they're wrangling over, the, the great game. And, and uh, meanwhile, they're fighting against their former allies, you know. The, the British tried to keep the Americans out from the region. The Americans finally were able to nose their way into this um, division of um, properties, so to speak, over the whole, it's called the Levant. That's a French word for uh, rising. The sun rises in the east. That's why that whole area is called the Levant. And when I arrived uh, the first time in uh, the 60s, a high school student, I, I learned that Lebanon was called the um, <clears throat> gateway to the Middle East. But then I learned even further that it's really the gateway to Middle East oil. That is, the oil of Saudi Arabia and Iraq um, uh, were running their pipelines through these through these major countries, these ports on the eastern Mediterranean. I'm filling in a lot of stuff there, but I would even add that the creation of the state of Israel has an oil connection. You'll have oh, to really? read the book about that. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, because um, at the very time when uh, Churchill was thinking he had to get the oil of Iraq to feed his um, his uh, navy, uh, there was correspondence going on. And one of the key ones was the 1917 Balfour Declaration, which is often looked to as uh, the Brits supporting the concept of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And so, you know, the history book talks about that, said that the, the British were for it. Uh, but what they didn't tell you was, what was the Balfour Declaration? It was a letter. And it was a letter between Lord Balfour, who ha happened to be the former foreign secretary, or I guess he was still foreign secretary of Great Britain, but knew all about these problems of, of, of getting the oil uh, to the eastern Mediterranean. And the person on the receiving end of the letter was uh, Lord Walter Rothschild, and the Rothschilds were the, this huge um, oil uh, Sion family, oil and banking. And uh, so there was this understanding and uh, that a Jewish homeland in the heart of this eastern region, eastern Mediterranean uh, region, uh, would be helpful uh, because these were Western, you know, Jews were, were Western Europeans. They weren't, they weren't Arabs. They weren't uh, Muslims who couldn't, in, in the West view, couldn't be relied upon, but the Jews could be. So, um, and there have been some Israeli scholars now uh, who, who are getting into declassified documents, and, I, and some of it I put in the book, that uh, began to see the oil connection to the Balfour Declaration. So that raises the whole question of, well, was it really because the Western powers cared about saving uh, the Jews from pogroms and later the Holocaust, or, or did they have uh, other motivations? So I go into some of these other motivations, hoping to raise people's consciousness that if we're going to see through this whole mess, we got to look at who's benefiting why, when did it happen, and 
does it say that we are all victims? First of all, that uh, the Armenians were also victims. I go into that. Um, the Armenians suffered the first genocide. Then there were the Jews. And uh, then there are the endless wars that are going on now. And definitely Gaza is now irrefutably a genocide. And let us understand that that rather than look at us against them, Arabs versus Jews, Shiites versus Sunnis, divide and rule tactics, we got to understand that we are all victims of very big power manipulations. And once we do that, there may be more understanding in the world. I, and I less actually, hatred. <laughs> I actually Go wanted ahead. to get into that. Uh, so what I was going to ask is, I think the picture you're you're painting here, I think is dizzying to so many people because they think that, oh, everything, all of these wars are just about, you know, the term people often use is ancient hatreds. And then uh -huh. I think when you're painting this picture, I know there's going to be at least one listener that says, oh, she mentioned Rockefeller or Rothschild. Is this like a conspiracy thing? So when you're talking to people that are just you're just trying to introduce them to the subject because I know that you're a very hard news journalist. You don't uh, publish BS or anything like that. How do you introduce this to people who may be skeptical or they may shut down when they hear certain key words, or they may have just uh, very firmly held views that this is all just ancient hatreds at work. Uh, how do you introduce this, uh, the sort of angle to people that are unfamiliar with it? Well, that's a great question. Um, actually, I introduced it with my personal story because uh, to bring us back, my father was head of counterintelligence for the Central Intelligence Group in 1947. And that's uh, Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett, yes. Not to be confused with the philosopher who is his son and my brother. A lot of people know Dan Dennett, philosopher. Anyway, he's, yeah, Dan, he was my father. And um, he was sent over there during World War II. And one of the, um, I ended up suing the CIA uh, under FOIA to find, get more of his papers. I got a lot of them. A lot of them are declassified in the National Archives, but I sued the CIA and I got some more. And, and my father's uh, report on what his role was, was um, <clears throat> he's being sent to Lebanon and there's this key paragraph in, in what he, in, he was parroting back to D.C. what his job was going to be. And what he said is, we have to control the oil at all costs. And what he meant was Saudi oil, right? Saudi oil was huge. Um, it's still huge. And every, every leader in the world knows it's huge. And, and if they want a reliable um, supply of oil, they got to kowtow to the Saudi leaders. Uh, so, uh, but in those days, he was writing, we have to control the oil at all costs. And he also predicted that there would be a quote unquote, real free for all after the war to get the oil. Uh, it was also a battle for airspace. That's a, another dimension, but I'll focus on the oil thing. So when I tell people that, and that we have to control the oil at all costs, that um, meme, that, that uh, explanation, has been used repeatedly all the way up through the 20th and 21st century. It's exactly a part of what governs the great game. And the biggest lesson of World War I and World War II was that Germany lost both wars. Why? Because they ran out of gas. Can you imagine? 
uh, I mean, when, when I explain that, people say, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. They ran out of gas. It, that means their whole their planes and the, and their tankers uh, and their lorries and so on can't function if they don't have control. And so that is why the great game goes on to this day, because they know that if you aspire to be a great power, you have to have ample con uh, control over the oil to feed your military and natural gas to run your your major industries. So when I when I explain it that way. Uh, people get it. And in fact, I've gone uh, before uh, uh, audiences, I've gone before primarily Jewish audiences. And when I tell my story about these big power maneuvers, it, I, I mean, they come up to me and they say it's like scales dropping from their eyes because they've been so, so propagandized uh, by the uh, Israeli, uh, you know, propaganda machine that they never had an opportunity to to look at another side of the whole story so the, it works i mean i'm rattling off a lot for for your viewers and listeners uh and they may have to pause uh to to, to take it all in but i will tell you there's a very simple thing you can do pick any pick any uh conflict that's going on now major conflict google it and then write and oil or and pipelines, and you would be surprised. You would be surprised how how much these are factors in these conflicts. Like Eastern Africa is awash with conflict right now, and there are a lot of big, big infrastructure schemes, pipeline schemes that, that the U.S. is advancing in Africa, and of course, so are the Russians and the Chinese, and that's where the great game comes in as well. The, you know the I think this whole the, this whole Biden administration um, support of Israel is also geared toward fighting the Russians and the Iranians and the Chinese, and that's how he justifies it. I mean, I just see it as as incredibly tragic uh, because what's going on is uh, the Western nations by throwing their support behind a man who is an out and out fascist uh, is is. Bibi, uh, so he can, you know, stay out of jail. Who does that sound like? Bibi and, and Trump, you know, what will they, what extent will they go to to stay out of jail and save their hides? And this is Bibi's great plan. He, he's wanted to get rid of Hamas for a long time. Now he's got the pretext, which was that admittedly horrific attack on uh, Israelis by Hamas. I, there will be a lot more. There's still questions about that, you know, whether uh, the Israel, Israel really knew in advance. I, I find it hard to believe, and so are increasing numbers of people, find it hard to believe the official explanation that Israel was caught off guard, caught by supply. It's one of the most heavily monitored monitored uh, regions in the world, next to, I would say, New York City and Washington, D.C., where, as you recall, 9-11 happened and, and caught the U.S. by surprise, which I found also equally difficult to believe. Uh, but at any rate, um, we're, it's going to take time for the whole story to come out. I want to know how Hamas uh, did what it did and didn't think that it was going to have horrific consequences to it. Um, 
but nonetheless, you know, you have to look at what happened then, 1400 uh, Israelis tragically killed. Now you're seeing, are we up to 8,000 Palestinians uh, yeah, killed? Yeah, it's, it's, it's up and, there, yeah. Yeah, and the majority of them children. And But, uh, you know, it's my hope that we, we turn around we turn away from the hateful blame games again and look at some of the underlying causes because let's face it, the oil and gas companies uh, have not been honest with us about China, about climate change. And so what's going to happen is, uh, you know, they're playing with all our lives at this point. That's what we got to realize. Before we start closing out, I was wondering uh, the timing of this brutal attack that Hamas did uh, in Israel. I think it's interesting because there was that whole normalization process between Saudi Arabia and Israel going on. And basically every analyst I know is saying that's on ice now. Uh, do you want to speak a little bit about uh, the past few years, especially the Trump years with Jared Kushner and the Abraham Accords and maybe the impetus behind the Hamas attack? Well, people are saying that uh, and this was a theory that was put out right after the Hamas attack, which was uh, once once uh, it seemed like there was movement go going toward further normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, Hamas saw the writing on the wall. Um, they were going to be ignored, uh, and it, it may well have been, you know, uh, and so they felt that. Um, the, the Palestinians would be even even more marginalized, and so they they took action. Um, as to uh, how they how they planned for this thing, um, there's still there's still information. We haven't got the whole the whole story on that. I, I've heard some things that they had they did not plan to have it have the the. Um, the cleavages in, in the fences and so on. They didn't realize it was going to be that easy. And then you get into, you know, who were all the factions that were got in there and did these horrible killings? And uh, Yeah, because it there, wasn't just a mosque. It was a few different groups. Yeah, It, it were different groups. Islamic Jihad, Jihad got into the story. You know, well, one day we'll get that whole story. Uh, but at any rate, the Abraham Accords were the beginning of trying to uh, get Israel and, and Saudi Arabia w working together. But, um, and, and I believe that, th that Saudi Arabia sort of gave lip service to the idea that there had to be a, a, a two-state solution, um, but it wasn't ironclad. And as I said, um, there was also the, the plan to, um, reopen the Trans-Arabian Pipeline. That's, that was part of the Abraham Accords. Uh, so I think they felt that by, by bringing economic development in the area, that that would uh, solve the problems. Uh, but that, that gravely overlooks um, the intensity of the feeling of um, marginal, marginalization and displacement on the part of the Palestinians. Now they've got much bigger allies because, because of what the Israelis are doing right now. So the, uh, 
the blowback from most of the world is supporting Palestinians. And I'm even hearing on the media that uh, brown people tend to be a little bit more sympathetic to their plight. <laughs> that, uh, you know, you've you just got two different worlds. You've got the people on the top that think they're going to bring peace to the Middle East on their terms, but that would not mean a return, the right of return for Palestinians who were uprooted during 1948. And of course, that's what their concern is right now, that they are being ethnically cleansed. And the whole, uh, even a memo has come out that they're going to be, um, that the plan is to have them all, all thrown into Egypt. Yeah, uh, I believe Egypt that came out from a 972 magazine. There was a, I think it was an Israeli intelligence memo. Yeah. Yeah, it's something like that. It's come out. That's the plan. And and so, you know, the, I mean, the right-wingers in Israel look at the Palestinians as animals. Uh, I even have a quote here, if I can find it, uh, but I may not. No, forget it. It'll take up too much of a time. But, yeah, they look at it as animals, and they have to be wiped out. And, of course, the rest of the world sees what's going on. They can't stand it. And so here we've got... Well, especially, got, like you said, the Global South, I think, looks at this. Oh, and they're Global really South. Let me, Palestinian. Yeah. Yeah. Gee, do you wonder why? Is there a history there? I mean, how can the United States have any credibility about he, they're going into a place to achieve democracy? Um, I don't know. I guess the exigencies of empire require that that it does so, but you can't erase historical memory. And, One more. and it's tricky because of the Holocaust as well. But I'm offering a way out of looking at it. Anyway, go ahead. What, one more thing, uh, because I know we have to start wrapping up, but um, you said that Netanyahu has wanted to get rid of Hamas. I, I've had a few guests say that Netanyahu was trying to do uh, a divide and conquer of the Palestinians by propping up Hamas. So would you say that you don't agree with that analysis or? No, I do agree with it. I do agree. He he, he decided in order to prevent uh, the billions of dollars of proceeds going to the Palestinian Authority, he decided, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to separate them because the Palestinian Authority had control over Gaza. All right. And by having control over Gaza, they would have had control over the oil and gas fields. But by separating them and and even funding Hamas, uh, the government through the uh, United Arab Emirates, um, in I think in Netanyahu's mind, uh, that was the way to prevent the oil and gas getting into the hands of any Palestinians, because who would who would want a terrorist organization to have control over those proceeds. And by the way, you have to be careful with that nomenclature. You know, the, the, the people did elect it. I, I gather that uh, not all not all the people in Gaza support Hamas, and it, and it is an Islamist organization. But, you know, it did provide education and health care. It sort of functions as a, a government. It controlled the hospitals. I mean the health the health administration. So, you know, just just to write them off as terrorists is you know part of the war plan, but it's not a hundred percent accurate. Um, yeah, so I agree with the the divide and rule analysis. 
maybe maybe the people who provided it did not realize the oil and gas uh, component to the whole thing. You know, it's very interesting because I think your work and, and Gerard's work, uh, when I've read your work, and now whenever I see you know, uh, a State Department official say, well, it's it's for the U.S. interests or our national interest. I almost yeah. get the feeling that national interest is code word for it's about the oil. Yeah, often. And, and again, you have to come back to us. It's still the primary fuel of the military. I believe the Pentagon has been researching uh, alternatives. Of course, they've got nuclear power submarines, which doesn't give one... Uh, much um, what hope for the future, but uh, they're, they're probably looking into lithium batteries. I, who knows what they're trying to do, but so far there's no match for oil as being the fuel of the military. And the military is the largest consumer of it. So yeah, they're going to keep it out of the news. And uh, it's time that, well, I'm doing everything I can do to educate people on, on this very formidable uh Component and let's face it, how how powerful are the energy companies? They're hugely powerful. I mean, even countries that are trying to wean themselves off uh, find themselves uh, confronted with that that huge power, like Germany. You know, I I also talk about Ukraine. The the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline came after many years of the U.S. trying to prevent that Nord Stream 2 from, from being constructed and from eventually going online. It was supposed to go online the summer of 22. Uh, and um, uh, the first sanction against Russia was against uh, uh, the pipeline. And, and they, they um, convinced Germany to sort of kill that project. So the Germans had to do it. Whereas the Germans were, you know, they, they'd already weaned themselves off nuclear power and they were really looking to this natural gas as the way out. And now because of the sanctions and the sabotage of the Nord Stream 2, they, they've got to find alternative sources. And when one looks into it, you find out that um, the uh, fracked gas that comes out of Western United States is all going over uh, to LNG uh, terminals in Europe, and they're making money heads over fists. So you got these energy companies um, that that are hugely powerful uh, and and creating all sorts of problems in the world uh, unless they get their way and get their profits. That's, that's the way it works. But you just got to keep keep fighting them. Keep raising people's consciousness and awareness of, of what's really going on behind the scenes. I just wanted to add very, very briefly here. Uh, you were mentioning the whole um, certain Israeli figures saying that, you know, the Palestinians are animals. I found the quote. Uh, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said right after the attacks, we are fighting human animals in Gaza. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to put that in there for people that wanted the exact quote. Uh, in closing, uh, what do you hope my listeners get out of this conversation and uh, how can they uh, buy the book? Well, first of all, to add to the quote, because I just found it, he said, I have ordered a campaign siege on the Gaza Strip. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we 
act accordingly. So there you go. That's the mentality. Yeah. So uh, where can people get the book? You're saying that I hate to say it. The best place is to order it off Amazon uh, because um, it's just the way my publisher works. You know, if so many orders come through, then they make that Amazon orders more from the publisher. I, Chelsea Green is the publisher or you can go to your your private um, bookstore and they and they will order it. Um, so that's, that's how that happens. And, and if it's, uh, anybody who, who prefers audio books, uh, it is an audio book and, uh, you can order that also from the publisher, Chelsea Green or for Amazon. So that's, that's how they get it. And then in terms of, uh, what you hope listeners get out of the conversation we've been having, if there's one thing you want them to take away, uh, maybe you can say in, uh, 30, 30 seconds to a minute. What do you want people to get out of this? To to understand how the fossil fuel companies are are in control and um, that they have to be challenged and that we have to form alliances. There are so many people that are working against climate change and they don't even know about this component that not only are they causing the oil companies causing the destruction of our planet, but they are benefiting and, and actually planning these horrible, endless wars that are going on in the Middle East right now. And the more you spread that word, uh, the better we'll be, the more pressure is put on them and on, on the governments that really want to move away from them, but they, they come under intense pressure. They're hugely powerful. Well, thank you again, Charlotte Dennett, for coming on Parallax Views. Well, thank you so much, DJ. It's really been a been a pleasure. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Charlotte Dennett, author of Follow the Pipelines. It's a very interesting book, and I hope to be able to speak with Charlotte Moore in the future. I've read some of her previous works, and I think she's a very interesting investigative journalist. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that... Uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. 
new forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.